It's again a remarkable privilege that we have to come together this Lord's Day morning, having been so richly blessed by God that we have the health and the livelihood, the disposition to come together as we have today. To do so, we of course have as a central aspect the focus on the Word of God and that which it teaches us, to use it to instruct ourselves in the ways that in fact are the pathways of righteousness. As you might notice, some two weeks ago now, I guess it would be, we began a series of lessons dealing with the subject of those books which our young people are studying as they prepare for the Bible Bowl. Those books are, again, those in the New Testament which begin with James and conclude with Jude. And we spent two weeks looking at various parts of the book of James. Today, as we consider the book of First Peter, we will, in fact, find something so great So lovely, beautiful, powerful, and mighty, and all the while we can appreciate it can be ours, and it's that which I've used to entitle our lesson, The Great Salvation. As Peter wrote or penned this book of 1 Peter, it might be fair to at least at the outset make a few introductory thoughts, a few introductory notes about the book, for as we do that, we'll be led to understand that its author, none other than the Apostle Peter, was a rather well-known figure to you and me from his presence on the pages of the Blessed New Testament. When you and I think of Peter, we think about his boldness, his aggressiveness, his directness. Wasn't it he who in John 20, when word came that in fact the tomb was empty where they had placed the body of Jesus, Mary Magdalene having returned and told the apostles, that Peter and John set out running to the tomb, and John outran Peter. He arrived there first. But however, he waited. But when Peter arrived, without hesitation, he entered into the tomb and discovered it exactly as the women had said. Peter was a to-the-point kind of person. In Luke 22, wasn't it Peter who, in fact, Jesus addressed and said that Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat? And in response, Peter said that it wasn't so, for in fact, I will not only go to prison, I'll die with you, Lord. And yet, some 34 verses later, he had denied Jesus three times. Peter was very human. Maybe we can see in him an an air, an aspect of the boldness and courageousness that we feel at times. And yet when we stumble and fall, perhaps like him and his denial, we can ask, how could I have let that happen? How could I have been so short-sighted to not make adequate preparation? Maybe you and I sometimes speak before we think, and didn't Peter do that more than once? But all the while, we notice that this book of 1 Peter will set before us the attitude and character of this very one, but he showed his disposition of boldness as he discussed with these blessed saints the character of what they had in store for them. I would ask you to go with me on a journey this morning as we look through the book of 1 Peter and gain some precious lessons therefrom and use them to encourage ourselves as we learn again about the great salvation. As I list there at the very bottom of that screen, one of the ways that can sometimes be very helpful to appreciate or at least understand better the major teaching of a book is to keep in mind what the major word is or the key theme. For many of the New Testament books, a word will appear very often and very frequently, and that word will be an idea that's very prominent in the mind of the writer. In the book of 1 Peter, the word is suffering. 
That word occurs, in fact, 17 times in five chapters. It, or some variation of it, 17 times in the 105 verses of 1 Peter. That being said, we might well begin by noting that the first century era, especially as we have noted in the book of Revelation on Sunday evening, was a time quite often of intense persecution for those that were to be faithful to Christ. For often the governmental powers opposed it. Quite often, of course, the Jews opposed it. The various others in society were against it. To be a Christian often demanded a great attitude toward not only the awareness of suffering, but how to deal with it. Throughout this book, we will then learn how does one face suffering? How can you overcome it? What's the benefit of it? What's the ultimate glory that shall come from it? All of that will be addressed as we look in the book of First Peter. Some of those lessons we'll encounter today, some next Lord's Day morning. But as we begin, might I suggest that at the very outset of the book, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Peter wastes no time in setting before these saints the fact of why it would be worth it to go through the suffering. Is it not easy to see that our universe, by and large, is lazy? The path of least resistance is more often than not what is selected and chosen. And hence, why would a person ever endure suffering for the cause of Christ? Is it worth it? As we begin in chapter 1, let's notice what Peter says at the outset. Is it worth it or not? He will leave no doubt in their mind. As we do that, the next screen will set before us some thoughts from chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, that we should, in fact, not only appreciate, but rest very heavily in our mind. I would ask that you first notice with me how vital salvation is. Verse 9, Peter will say, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. There's the word salvation as it appears in the very context of this matter of suffering. And he says, that faith that you possess, and in fact that you have it enjoy, its end, its benefit, its ultimate reality and goal is the salvation of your souls. Oh, how vital and beautiful is the thought of salvation. In the Old Testament, the word salvation comes from a Hebrew word that means deliverance. To be delivered from something, some enemy, some opposition, some great opposing force, to be saved is to be delivered from that. You and I, upon recognition of the fact that we have been captivated by sin, overwhelmed by it and overcome by it, and by the character of the salvation proclaimed in Scripture, we can be delivered from it. That's in a very basic way what salvation is all about. Notice in verse 3, how is this salvation described and why is it so great? And notice how worth it it really is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What a vivid description we have here of the fact it is worth it. It matters not what oppositions are thrown our way, what fiery darts are cast at us by Satan, as described in Ephesians 6. You and I can understand that no matter what, 
we must endure to the end. Matthew 10, 22. We must push onward and appreciate that, in fact, this salvation is not only worth it, but in fact, it's far more than worth it. Let's note the vivid description that's given to us in beginning in verse 3. Especially of note are the adjectives and nouns of verse 4. What is it we're looking for? An inheritance incorruptible. Is it not true that we look forward and are anxious about things that are incorruptible? That word incorruptible simply means it does not perish. It's imperishable. Oh, how lovely it is to think about that glorious abode forevermore once salvation is fully realized. It's imperishable. Never to be tarnished, marred, scarred, removed, in any sense taken away. But not only that, it's an inheritance. Bequeathed unto us by the very God of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Note verse 3. And furthermore in verse 5, it's kept by the power of God as His children. Is it not an exciting thought to think that He will bequeath unto us an eternal home with Him and with our blessed Savior, Christ Jesus. But let us note further, not only is this place imperishable, it's also undefiled. That means it's unstained. It is pure. As often as we desire things that are uncontaminated, like water, the various elements we may use to cleanse our body within and without, here is a place that is absolutely undefiled in any way spiritually. For in fact, what is it that will never enter heaven according to Revelation 21? In that blessed scene there where John is given a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem, he sees the marvelous glory of heaven itself. And he describes it by using various precious gemstones for its foundation, various doors and entrances of pearl, for example. But when he arrives at the end of that chapter, having noted that the brightness thereof is such that one needs not neither the sun or the moon, the temple of God in its midst is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father Himself, he ends by saying, no defilements are there. No sin will enter heaven. That much we can rest assured of. And yet here is a place that Peter is describing in that very way. Heaven will be an undefiled location. Furthermore, verse 4, it fades not away. In the Greek, that means it's permanent. You and I often in this life face things that are temporary, things that don't last. We may construct and we build and we make preparations for things to be vitally that which will last, and yet with the passing of time it will deteriorate. It will decay. It will pass aside even these bodies which you and I may enjoy the strength thereof in youth. The time comes in elder age that we appreciate it has deteriorated some. The former strength is no longer there. Here in heaven, this great salvation has as its end a permanent place that knows no end. That should bring to our mind, just as it did those to whom Peter wrote, the fact that any amount of suffering and opposition that we must face is well worth it to get to a place like this, a place heaven itself. For after all, isn't that the very word that is used at the close of verse number 4? Where is this place reserved in heaven for you? We have here a reference by none other than the Apostle Peter himself to a beautiful reservation. 
Isn't it lovely to consider that just as you and I can make reservations at a hotel or a restaurant if, if the occasion and need arises, there is every bit the same recognition we must and ought to make reservations in heaven. Have you made reservations? Have you made adequate preparation to ensure that your name is on the roll and are expected there? Peter wrote to those to whom he has addressed here and noted this place is reserved. It doesn't come free in the sense that you can just expect to saunter in unprepared. It takes the possibility and the fact of being reserved. Notice also what else might be said. In the verses that are presented in chapter 1, this great salvation is such that it is the absolute realization of that living hope that we have. Verse number 3. As we live through our life here, we understand the fact that we have the ultimate hope hereafter. We may enjoy our life here and in fact enjoy the blessings that God has given us, but all the while our firm intent is the realization of that hope for hereafter. Peter makes that note to these blessed saints. And isn't it interesting also when that hope will be understood? Note with me also, verse number 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The realization of this hope, the entrance into heaven, the recognition of this place incorruptible and undefiled and it's permanent, is such that it will be ultimately received when our Lord Jesus returns. Not before. For you see, that's when the judgment will shortly thereafter follow and we shall be able to enter, the faithful that is, into the beautiful climes of that glorious abode of heaven. This work then of salvation, Peter, if you will, hits the ground running in the book of 1 Peter. He challenges them to appreciate the destination or the end they're working for. And as he journeys through the book, Time and again, he'll refer to this great salvation as to the very thrust, motivation, and meaning for what they do. Let us look at another aspect. Where is this salvation described? You and I have been reading about it in the Word of God. Verse 1 closes by affirming that this place is described in that location. But the Word of God endureth forever. And this is the Word which by the gospel is preached unto you. May we thus never lose sight of the fact that the blessed gospel is the Word of God. On many occasions, the Old Testament claims itself to be the Word of God. Here is one of the New Testament occurrences where the New Testament is again said to be God's Word. All 66 books presenting to us the nature of God's will in the various ages of time. Having made mention of this salvation... You might note that we said little about verses 10 through 15. And that's good reason because it deserves a screen of its own. It deserves a more extended consideration. In fact, would you read with me beginning in verse 10 and we'll read through verse 13. As far as evidence is to those readers of his day as to how great the salvation is, perhaps there's no statement more powerful than this. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, 
searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should, be, that, that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them, that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, the greatness of the salvation. Did you notice with me in verse 10 how that Peter calls to their mind the fact and the thought of the Old Testament prophets, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. I've listed some thoughts on the wall to my left. Here, Peter makes note of the following ideas. To these first century saints, he said, Do you not know that those great figures of the Old Testament, they longed to know that which you now experience? They inquired and searched diligently. That means they carefully sought for. They carefully desired to appreciate that which you have in possession. Talk about some of the noblest souls who ever lived. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. Those last 17 books of the Old Testament, testimony to their reality of the sufferings that they faced, and they didn't give up. They maintained faithfulness to the end. They, in fact, were some of the boldest individuals who ever walked the face of our earth. And yet they had not the blessing you now have in Christ. They died long before the Savior was ever born. They died long before the church was ever established. They died long before the New Testament gospel ever came to be reality. And yet, did you note the words that Peter used to describe it? Verse 11, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. What they prophesied about the coming Christ and the reality of His church. They knew it would be great. They knew that it would be something marvelous and mighty. And oh, how they wished that they could have participated in it, but they never could. They died before the church ever came to be reality. Furthermore, in verse 12, Unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister. They knew that what they prophesied was yet in the future. And they also understood that they would not live to see it, but yet they wanted to. They desired it. They knew how great it would be. It was the eternal purpose of God. Ephesians 3, verse 11 doesn't that illustrate how great you and I have as our privilege to live in the modern age, the Christian era, when Christ has already come, when the hope of our salvation has been fully revealed? You see, they didn't have the reality of Christ in their history. He was yet future for them. They didn't have the glory of the church as present tense reality for them. But we do. Isn't it then a tragedy when we sometimes fail to appreciate the church the way that we should? It is the greatest institution on earth. The God of heaven sent His Son to die to make it a reality. 
And yet there are those in our world who look down upon it, snub their nose at it, fail to appreciate it, consider it equal to something like a civic organization or club, and it is not. It is absolutely eternal in character. Peter told these brethren to whom he wrote, never underestimate the power and the greatness of the Lord's church. As he wrote this to them about the prophets looking into this body, Notice as he closed verse 12, someone else is interested in it too. Which the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. We understand from Hebrews chapter 12 that there is a numberless amount of angels. More than you and I can number. And yet we are told here that those angels have a keen interest in the reality that takes place in the church. How great a salvation is it? It's so great that both the angels and the prophets desired to appreciate, look into, and understand the fullness and the greatness to be found therein. Perhaps we might remember a statement made by our Savior in Matthew 11. When he made discussion about John the Baptist, do you remember how he described John? He said, Among those born of women there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, and yet he that is in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Those in the kingdom of heaven are Christians, you and me. Jesus well appreciated and stated that among those born of women, John is great. But yet John lived in the Old Testament era. He lived before the cross of Christ became that reality. How great are you and I in the church? Greater than John. May we then appreciate, think about greatly this salvation that's before us and use it to prompt us in yet another fashion. How is this salvation possible? Peter leaves us not to doubt. Look with me also at this fact. Namely, the work of Christ as our Savior. In chapter number 1 of 1 Peter, beginning in verse 18, we read these words. For as much as ye know, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Throughout the ages, men stumble around in the dark and they follow their own devisings, their own ideas. Notice in verse 18, he says, those traditions handed down from your fathers, but, verse 19, that three-letter word but encounters or makes known to you and me a change of thought. You and I have not received the vain traditions of our fathers. How were we redeemed? The precious blood of Christ. That word redeemed means to be purchased, to be bought back. When you and I were in sin, the devil was our owner. He was our master. He was the one who, in fact, was able to make direction and call the shots, for we were in his kingdom. And yet, we notice that we were redeemed, bought back by the blood of Christ. These individuals who were suffering for the cause of Jesus, these to whom Peter wrote, notice here that Peter says, Christ suffered for you. He gave his life for you that you might be redeemed. Is it not then the least you can do to endure a bit of suffering for his name and for his sake? 
your faithfulness is that crucial and it is that vital. Notice that he also says in verse 20 that this Jesus, our Savior, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That means it was in the eternal mind of God that he would pay this price for the salvation of all of us. And in paying that price, it was a foreordained matter. God in his infinite and eternal mind had made that decision. Is it not then something that's a bold statement to these saints who were suffering in this area of Asia Minor that they needed to be faithful? I would submit to you that there are many references in chapter 2 to this Jesus of whom we've just referred. References that challenge our mind to this day to understand better the greatness of him. Let us notice a few of them. First, he is described in three different ways by the word stone. Verse number 4, chapter 2. To whom coming as into a living stone. A living stone, such that disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Not only this lively or living stone, Jesus also described in the verses that follow. Verse number 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Not only a living stone, we read here Jesus was a chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone in ancient building, and even to this day, how important it is to ensure that the walls are nice and straight, else there's possibility of collapse. That chief cornerstone was the first rock put in place in the ancient time. It made the perpendicular character of the walls evident, and that stone had to be strong. What about the chief cornerstone of the church? Who is it, and what is it? The chief cornerstone of your life of faith and mine, who is it, or what is it? Is that chief cornerstone the one described in the Scripture, Jesus Christ, our Savior? It must be if it's to endure the character of the trials of this life and the eternity of God's judgment. That chief cornerstone, yet we find in verse 8, is rather ironically a stone of stumbling to some other people. Is Jesus a stone of stumbling to anyone that you know? Failing to understand the greatness of Him and to build their life on Him, do they rather stumble due to things He has taught or stated? It is always a keen idea that we must never let Him be a stone of stumbling, but rather let Him be the chief cornerstone of our life. Inasmuch as Jesus is described in these terms, He is the one that serves as our example. Notice with me verses 21 and following of chapter 2. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Oh, what an example. Isn't it interesting that sometimes various individuals may serve as examples? We're told to be like this person or our young people are encouraged to be like someone else. 
There is no better example, for the main chief example is Jesus. Why is that? There was no guile found in his mouth. He never once sinned, and furthermore, when he was threatened, he threatened not again. When he was reviled, verse 23, he did not revile again. Jesus set before us the ideal example in every regard. No wonder we should be diligent students then of the Bible to ensure that we pattern our life after Him. In what way did He endure suffering? In what way did He approach difficulty and problem? In what way did He rejoice in times of celebration? All of that we can learn from the life of our blessed Savior. As Jesus then serves as example, Peter reminded his listeners and readers, you look to Jesus. Is it not true in the Hebrew letter we read, He was the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. These ideas perhaps have brought us to one of the songs that we sometimes sing. Number 365 in our book, Alleluia, what a Savior. Maybe each time we sing that song, we can think about with renewed energy and vigor the greatness of how great a Savior we do have. Not just an ordinary man, not just a good teacher, not just, in fact, a prophet, all of that and a lot, lot more. What a great salvation we have. As I've stated so far many times, a salvation that we have. How do we have it? We have noted it comes through Christ. We've noted how great it is. All that remains is to use the book of Peter, 1 Peter, to illustrate how it comes. In 1 Peter chapter number 3, we begin by tying that with chapter 1 to reach this conclusion. Chapter 1 verse 23 reads, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever." This salvation that is so great does not come on unconditional terms. It must be received by a specific idea or set of activities. One must be born again. And doesn't that remind us of what our Savior taught to Nicodemus? He said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus in John 3 verse 4 was a bit perplexed. He said, how is it? For when a man is old, could he enter again a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then Jesus elaborated by saying, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. The absolute requirement of a rebirth. But in verse 21 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, we notice that Peter elaborates even further by describing salvation in these terms. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We notice then that Peter said here, this like figure is the very idea which leads or produces this salvation. May we appreciate what is the like figure. Verses 18 through 20 have just been discussing the flood of Noah's day. And in that context, he made note of water. And that water indeed lifted the ark to safety. But it condemned, or in fact, killed those that were outside the ark, for they drowned in it. 
that like figure whereinto, verse 21, even baptism doth also now save us. In the same way that the waters of the flood lifted Noah and his family to safety aboard the ark, in the same way you and I are lifted safely from the waters of baptism to salvation in Christ. There's no denying that that's the statement that Peter made. Baptism is thus absolutely required. It is essential as the act of salvation. Now, prior to that, we understand that we must believe upon Christ. We must repent of our sins. Furthermore, we must confess His sweet name as Savior. But then, in that act of baptism, we contact His blood, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. And in that contact, His blood washes our sins away, and we rise to walk in newness of life, saved. Those whose names have been written in the book of life and who are then able to possess that great salvation described in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This matter then of chapter 3, verse 21, has reminded us that one of the words, in fact, the English Standard Version uses, they were brought safely through water. You and I must be brought safely through water if we are to be saved. As we thought then about some of the considerations of the book of 1 Peter, perhaps in fairness we can conclude some of them with the last slide of our lesson today. Can we not then say that you and I are so very blessed to be able to experience the great salvation? As Peter wrote to those of his day, they, under great trials of affliction and difficulty, were perhaps tempted to turn from it, to take the path of least resistance, and yet Peter said you do not want to do that. You need to, in fact, realize the goal ahead and travel that straight and narrow pathway that leads to life, Matthew 7, verse 13. As we've discussed these things, may we realize that you and I will endure persecution, for all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy three twelve. But you and I, just like those of 1 Peter chapter 1, must keep our eyes riveted on the goal of heaven and not let Satan take that from us. Never let him, in fact, play the role of spoiler and remove from us the great power and character of that great salvation. Are you faithful today? Have you been a faithful member of the Lord's body in times past but are not now? Come back to that first love. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. May we realize that if you have departed from the faith, you can come back home, just like the prodigal son did in Luke chapter 15. If we could aid you by way of prayer, as God will forgive your sins, we'd be happy to do so. But if you've never become a Christian, this great salvation that we've talked about today, that the angels desire to look into, that the prophets of old foretold but never got to experience, they would love to have the opportunity that you do Will you not take advantage of it today and become a member of the Lord's body if we could be of assistance to you in accomplishing that act of baptism? Not only would it be a marvelous and grand day for you, it'd be a day we could celebrate here at Pippin, and also those angels would do the same. Again, Luke 15, verses 7 and 8. If we could help you today in your response to the gospel publicly, will you not let that be made known even now while together we stand and while we sing?